Okay. I'm That's gonna... the ASL for a casino. <laughs> I just learned it. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we've been saying all these days. <laughs> There's like deaf people like, wow, those two really like casinos. <laughs> Those girls really? have gambling addiction. No, they have really a problem. <laughs> We'd like to remind you that the information contained within this podcast reflects our own personal opinions and should not be held as any kind of official recommendation. That's right. This podcast is for our own purposes. It's educational and, and for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Edutainment, if you will. <laughs> We're just a couple yahoos with master's degrees, and this isn't a professional capacity. So if as you're listening to an episode, you feel that maybe you need help with your own mental health, please do contact your own doctor or a therapist. And finally, we try to stay pretty clean with this podcast, but sometimes we slip up and sometimes we just talk about weird stuff. So <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) it might be not safe for work you'd probably better listen with headphones hello and welcome to freudian sips the podcast about brains beverages and other bs i'm bonnie and i'm anna hi sipsters hello everyone how are you doing I wish you could see it as hands asking you with open arms. With open arms How and open hearts. Doing, How are you doing, sisters? Come into the circle of love. Come into our bosoms. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of when we were in grad school and our professor was telling us about some counselor who would like hold clients to her bosom. <laughs> you remember that? No, that must have made more of an impression on you than me. I think it was because I knew I probably <laughs> You're do like, that. Oh, so I'll that. do that. Yeah, that's me. I have a bosom. I will hold them to I it. will be the bosom counselor. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bosom. I am not, Men, however, Everyone has bosom. a bosom. Men have bosoms. That's true because Abraham has one. <laughs> In the bosom of Abraham. The most manly, yeah. manliest man of them all, yeah. Abraham he from the Bible. He was a very masculine <laughs> Abraham person. from the Bible. Yes. That's his surname. <laughs> Mr. Abraham from the Bible. <laughs> Mr. from the Bible to you. Father of multiple, multiple children, <laughs> as many as the sand grains That's on so many. That's too seashore. many. I'll say. That's a lot of kids. Hot take. Too many kids. <laughs> So, this is not a podcast about the Bible. This is a podcast about brains. <laughs> brains, so, beverages, and BS. And BS. So, We've covered the BS portion a little bit already. But as you can clearly see, the we BS are so flows good at that part. Really. We have not done the beverages lately. We're not real big on the beverages. I don't know. I'm always drinking water. Yeah, that's you a good have beverage. You got to have water if you want to be the good. champion. But but, <laughs> but we, sisters, we you like may have to have a beverage just to listen to this podcast at times. It doesn't mean we, you know, yeah, we're are sober, you. but yeah. you don't have to be. <laughs> you probably <Listen>. shouldn't be. <laughs> you probably it'll make us funnier if we're not. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, so that leaves the brain. <laughs> cool. And, so what uh, kind of brain stuff are we talking about today? Do we have any pre-roll? Oh, we do have one pre-roll. 
So uh, we got a really cool message from one of our sipsters. Um, so Emily, if you're listening, hi, Emily. So Emily uh, messaged us that she adopted a cat recently uh, <laughs> from a kitty cat cafe. And we love people so who cool. adopt kitty cats. So that's all good. We love cats. We love our sipsters. This is a great combination. <laughs> but she messaged us that while she like while uh, she and her husband adopted this cat, she was wearing our go to therapy shirt. <laughs> ah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so she, uh, they have this uh, post on the River Kitty Cat Cafe about them, and she's wearing our shirt, and it's really cool. Oh she was God. like, "I just so happened to be wearing my favorite shirt, my favorite new podcast shirt, ah, while I did it." So I love that so much. Yeah, that's so cool. So Emily, Emily. thank you for repping our our podcast. Thank you for <laughs> uh, telling people to go to therapy, and thank you for adopting a kitty cat. Yeah, that's awesome. You tell you're a good person all around because Absolutely. you you, you encourage therapy. <laughs> you wear cute t-shirts. You, cute shirts. you get cute cats. <laughs> you adopt cats. You must be a really cool person, Emily. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for telling us. That made our day. It's it, it really did because Anna sent me a picture of it and I was like, I got emotional over it because we had talked about on the podcast how we would like cry if we saw when somebody in the happened. store and then it happened. So we didn't even have to see them in real life. Just a, another physical human person wearing our merch. We like are brought yeah. to tears. So yes. Emily, that's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. What episode are we on, by the way? Oh, jeepers. Oh, no. One. Oh, dear. 106. 106. 106. Okay. All right. Episode 106 is going to be about Aaron Beck. <laughs> I was thinking it, it took Joe. You a second. I always want to say Albert. And I think that's because of Albert Ellis. Yes, that's what that's what first came to my Who mind when you said Beck Albert. Who worked with. They were buds. They that's were buds. maybe why they come together in your brain. Albert and Aaron were buds. Buds. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to talk about Aaron Beck. We're talking about a person today, but we're also going to talk about his assessment tools that he helped to create, yeah. his inventories, both for depression and anxiety. He covered the bases. He he did a lot. He was a busy... Do- Is he alive? He was a busy man. No. Okay. Oh, sorry. That he, was some kind of... He died very recently, actually. 2021. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. wasn't from COVID, was it? I don't think so. I hope not. Okay. It was from old. He was very old. <laughs> he was old. I mean, he was busy in the 50s, so yeah. he's been he's been working for a long time. Yeah. And to clarify, this is not Beck the musician, correct? They're not the same guy. <laughs> I'm pretty sure now. He's the, what did Beck sing? What is it? What are any of Beck's songs? I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? That one? You never heard that song? I am, not with, I am not with you on this at all. Soy un perdidor. <laughs> I think that means I am a loser in Spanish. <laughs> that's very sad. I know. Um, that's a Beck song. Does he have any happy songs? <laughs> I don't think so. He's, no, he kind of stays like, on that level. Like a guy that's singing right now? Like a popular? Like a current musician. Okay. Yeah, that's he's what been I'm... things. Yeah, he's been yeah. around for a while. Okay. Loser was I should nice. really know him then, right? Perhaps. But I don't. But I guess it, it's fitting that he sang such a sad song because Beck talked about sad stuff. <gasps> that's true. Our Beck, not, not the musician Beck. <laughs> Do you know what the musician Beck's first name is? No, Maybe I don't his know. First Beck name is, is really Beck. even his real name. Maybe Beck is just like a share name. But, but I bring it up because when I search, I use Wikipedia for most of my my research. You see, and when I searched Beck, I just searched Beck like that word without thinking, and it took me to his. Oh, his really? first name is Beck. Beck David yeah. Hansen. There you go. Yeah. So you're going to tell us about 
Aaron Beck's life. I am. Are you, you not do that? the history moments? The, the history. biography moments. <laughs> the biography moments. <laughs> the key moments in his life <laughs> that developed his theories. Yes. yes. Aaron Temkin Beck was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Wait a minute. On- wait a minute. Temkin? Yeah. That's a unique name. I think it was his mom's surname. surname. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Didn't want to stop you right in the beginning there. (laughs) I haven't gotten through a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Gonna be one of those days with your mama. I love it. So he was born at Rhode Island, July 18th, 1921. Remember when I told you he died? Oh, he was 100 years old. He was a whole 100 years old. Wow. Yeah. And That's he was, amazing. He was busy the whole time. Also. He didn't stop. <laughs> he did not stop going. He was the youngest of four children, born to Harry Beck, who was a printer, and Elizabeth Temkin, who was a... The daughter of a family who was in tobacco wholesale <laughs> kind of is her <laughs> very where she got her money, I okay. guess. They were both Jewish immigrants from Ukraine. We stand with Ukraine always. Yep. They were described as having a comfortable middle class lifestyle, but also as being like upwardly mobile within the Jewish community. They were very involved in the local Jewish community. Mm. In school, Beck was very active. Feels weird not calling him Aaron. I gotta call him Aaron, right? Yeah, I think so. Because he's our bud. In school, Aaron was very active. He was very academically inclined. He graduated valedictorian of his high school, magna cum laude from Brown University, um, where he was also in the academic society. He was editor of the paper. He won an essay award. (laughs) He was busy. He was an overachiever. He was very much an overachiever. Uh, He went to Yale Medical School with the intention of being an internist. Like hmm. the organs. The internal stuff. The internals. <laughs> and, and he graduated a medical doctor. So he he was wow. he was well on the path. He did a residency in pathology, but then moved to one in neurology, which he reportedly really liked. He said the procedures were very precise, which he appreciated. Hmm. So he's very, very organized. It's like a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That could lead to some, I don't know, writing anxiety, notes, depression. Writing notes. <laughs> but because of a shortage in psychiatry residents, he was asked to do a stint over there. That's how he oh, kind of got pushed over. Huh. Which those are the kind of things that in these biographies are really like. Like, oh, he got there because there was a shortage of residents. <laughs> That's how he started Kind of like when you psychiatry. play in band and they, they say, hey, we don't have anybody playing French horn. Like what happened <laughs> to your brother? Could you over there for could a second? you go play French like, horn? We I've know. been doing this other thing the whole time. <laughs> yeah. They're like, no, no. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We need you over there. Just (laughs) a body. We need a body over there. Fill it in. And he was kind of skeptical, especially I think after being in neurology, which is very precise, going into something like psychiatry, which so at the time (laughs) psychoanalysis was what was what was going on. Right. Very precise. Right. (laughs) But he ended up really liking psychoanalysis, kind Hmm. of against his own better judgment. He ended up really liking it. It took until 1950 to finish medical internships and residencies, after which he became a fellow in psychiatry at a private mental hospital up in the mountains of Massachusetts. That sounds peaceful. A mental hospital. Or a private <laughs> mental hospital there. I don't know. That sounds like horror movie kind of thing. In Shutter Island in the mountains. Yes, yes. Instead of an island. Yeah, right. Shutter Mountain, I guess. <laughs> he also got married around this time. Mazel tov. Uh, in 1950 to Phyllis W. Beck, who is also very big in the in the psychiatry community, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had four kids. Roy, Judith, Daniel, and Alice. More hmm. on that later. They are involved in their father's legacy in CBT. Cool. Have we have we said yet that he's like called the father of CBT? 
No. Yeah. So the the cognitive behavioral therapy, he made it. He birthed it. (laughs) He can be the father and birth it. Yeah. It came from his points. It came from his loins. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry, Aaron, to talk about your loins on a podcast. (laughs) Um, But he's even going, that's okay. Like, I had great loins. (laughs) Talk about them. They were beautiful. (laughs) Exquisite loins I have. Exquisite (laughs) loins. My legacy. And the CBT stuff, I guess. <laughs> Honestly, I had kind of forgotten that he was a CBT father because I was so focused on his inventories. Yeah. That I kind of forgot that. It, uh, it's duh. interesting to think that the person who created that whole, I mean, we've talked about CBT. We've done a whole episode on CBT. I think it's 71. I'm pretty sure. I mean, the person who created all of that also himself <laughs> made these specific inventories for all these things. That we that we use. A lot. A lot. Yeah. They're used a lot in the business yeah in the business in the busyness and he was the busyness yeah the most busy he must have been just brilliant oh yeah it is interesting to think i mean he clearly worked super hard but he also just must have been very smart naturally yeah to pick up on like the patterns that he picked up on Mm -hmm. very cool uh he was only in massachusetts i guess his family was only in massachusetts that's a hard word. <laughs> Got a lot of <laughs> going on. <laughs> For a few years before he joined the military, he served as the assistant chief of neuropsychiatry at Valley Forge Army Hospital. Good God. When did he have time to do that? Well, everything <laughs> no, else he was doing. He also had four kids. <laughs> yeah. When did he have time to do that? Well, I guess you could sneak that in pretty short terms. <laughs> Phyllis was more busy with that one, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phyllis, I'm but home Phyllis for But Phyllis was also minutes. working on all this stuff. So I don't know, man. So after his stint in the military, he grabbed a teaching position at the University of Pennsylvania. It was around this time he started to think that the only way psychoanalysis was going to be really respected as a science was if it had more research to validate it. He thought it would get more traction if it was a little more Mm -hmm. research-based. So he really dived into the research stuff. He dived into a lot of studies. He assisted with a study to create an inventory to assess masochistic hostility in manifest dreams. Wow. (laughs) Which is a fancy way of saying, so manifest content in dreams is just what you remember about dreams. So literally, like, if the stuff you're dreaming about is, like, angry, Mm. like, that's what he was studying. I had a weird one last night. We'll talk about it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Sidebar. Remind me to tell you about my dream later. Oh, my God. Anyway. (laughs) Talk about manifest. Oh, my Lord in heaven. Okay. He studied dreams for a while, actually. He he was really interested in, like, the thought patterns behind dreams. But this study, like, where it kind of ended up. So psychoanalysis said that. Sorry. (laughs) My chair. Here, let me see if I could do it again. Like that. I hope that's my chair. And if that that's something mom. ongoing in, on, in your internals, that's a problem. I you see it <laughs> Sorry, I'm hungry. Squeak, 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 squeak. Sorry. I just, I skipped breakfast. I... <laughs> If we do this podcast as I get much older, those kind of sounds might be coming from me. I'll start worrying then. (laughs) And no sooner. Okay. Oh, my God. Sorry. What were you talking about? I have no idea. (laughs) So whereas in that study, like, psychoanalysis would have said that there was going to be 
anger there, like in the dreams themselves. What Beck found was that it came up with more themes of loss and rejection and failure and stuff Mm. that linked back more to depression. So he got funded, he continued the research, and that's what led to the development of the depression inventory. Yay. Yay. So he did that pretty early on. And that is because of that kind of whole study, I think, was around the time when he started to have real doubts about psychoanalysis. Uh, Mm. So through the 50s, because he was still working at the university, he kind of reluctantly kept with the department's psychoanalytic theories, but he was continuing his own projects, his own research, experimentation, that kind of stuff. There was also a lot of personal drama within the department. So like there was an old army buddy and mentor of Beck's, and they kind of ended up being on, on different sides of an argument about like who to hire for a board position or something. So there was a lot of kind of internal drama that was within the university as well. So that was also, while he was also not agreeing with the kind of tenets that the department was founded on, too, because his own research was leading him farther and farther away. And to add Sherry on top, the American Psychoanalytic Institute didn't like how he was starting to handle therapy with his new CBT techniques. They rejected his uh, membership application in 1961 because they doubted his claims of success from what he was describing as pretty brief therapy interventions. CBT generally tends to break those thought patterns down pretty quickly. And so he was seeing results with his clients that he was actively working with pretty quick. And they were like, mm, sounds fake. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have a supervisor sit in with your sessions and stuff. And so he was like, no. And he applied again the next year. He hadn't had supervision or anything. Like he wasn't doing supervised sessions or anything. He just like more concisely and clearly documented his processes and stuff. And they still rejected him. So he said, mm. screw it. <laughs> he was like, I am out of here. He requested a sabbatical and he started his own private practice. That sounds like you. Yeah, kind of. I didn't get rejected <laughs> anywhere, though. No, that's true. I didn't get rejected because I was making my own revolutionary school of thought. <laughs> but you did start your own practice. That was I the didn't part do that you did. part, sure. <laughs> I, I hadn't started a whole separate school of psychology for it. That's what he was doing. He was he was already really focused on like thought patterns by this time. So his idea was that if it could be observed in the present, then it could be changed. It could be worked on. It could be treated. So that all led to him developing a more cognitive theory on depression that underlying negative beliefs associated with kind of loss and failure were to blame. So this was still at odds with his psychoanalytic theory. That said that depression was the result of anger turned inward. Mm -hmm. That depression was people who were depressed had this like innate need to suffer. Mm. That like they seek it out almost. They like seek out suffering, Mm -hmm. which I think, people do that when they have negative beliefs about themselves. So I think actually kind of both are a little bit right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's kind of like two different ways to look at the same thing. I don't know. It boils down to the same root Mm -hmm. cause, I think. Mm -hmm. Like, because I do think people turn their anger in on themselves when they're depressed and feeling like they're to blame for all their problems. I felt like part of it was saying previously, they looked at it like people had depression and therefore they started having like low self-worth because they had depression first and then he turned it around to say the thoughts of not feeling good about yourself causes lead the depression. To depression that's kind of how i looked at it but i find it very confusing yeah. like the difference between the two views i find very confusing well i mean he studied psychoanalytic theory for a long time he really liked psychoanalytic theory right and he called himself a neo-freudian 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very linked together. It's, it's, it's dovetailing right. off of psychoanalysis. It's going to be very similar. It's just more thought-based instead of, like, I mean, Freud didn't focus on thoughts. He focused on, like, the core of who you are. Yeah. Your <laughs> like, subconscious and the, the... bits that make you up. Mm-hmm. The adigo superego stuff. Yeah, I, th- I, I just feel like it overlaps. Yeah. They overlap each other. But it is, you know, especially about the therapy part of it, that CBT therapy is very different than psychoanalytic right. therapy, so... Yeah, during this time, he was also, like, keeping notebooks upon notebooks filled with his own thought patterns. So he was, like, kind of doing self-reflection, self-research, where at least twice a day for several years, he wrote out his own negative thoughts, rated with a percentile belief score, classified, and restructured. Wow. (laughs) That's a lot of work, man. That is some serious self-reflection. Yeah. But, I mean, it's got to be pretty effective because it's keeping yourself very accountable. Well, if you think about it, that's kind of one of the things that we tell clients to do. Yeah, that's I mean, not basically to that degree, what he but, ended up yeah. turning into CBT, like right. how to treat other people's negative thoughts is like, let's classify them, let's you break them down, yep. let's reframe them, yep. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just did it on himself for a long time first, which, hey, it worked, I it's guess. It's better than doing it on your kids like Freud did. <laughs> <laughs> I Yet another thing that he did a little bit better than Freud. <laughs> didn't <laughs> didn't drag didn't his kids research. through it. That's probably why his kids like are still involved with the institute he founded and stuff. Like they're continuously involved in his work. It's probably because he didn't like research on them mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Try to cure them of their gay and stuff like <laughs> Freud did. Uh, he was oh, also Freud. Aaron, not Freud, <laughs> was right. working with Albert Ellis at this time. Uh, so Albert Ellis is the person who developed rational emotive behavioral therapy, which is very similar to CBT. Just kind of again, that was like one of those things in grad school that we learned, and it was just various acronyms that did very similar things and right. kind of used very similar techniques. Just so, add a little twist to it. Yeah. Yeah. Add its own little flair. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Aaron was also working with his clients using these developing theories. He was taking more of a collaborative role with the clients. I think that's also a very big departure from psychoanalysis. Because we've talked about the whole, like, Freudian therapy where someone would be laying down and the psychoanalyst is, in like, on top. Not, not on, on top, top of their of head. <laughs> <laughs> sitting on their head like a little bird. No, like sitting like a like above their head where they can't see them. Right, behind you know. their head kind of. That's a better way to say. <laughs> above them. Floating above, above them. their head. Yeah. <laughs> Freudian stuff is weird. <laughs> but Aaron was taking on a more collaborative role. He wanted to help them be the ones to break down their own thought patterns, basically. And he would mm-hmm. explore the thought patterns with them and kind of examine whether those thought patterns helped or hurt them and help them decide which ones to keep, basically. So let's go like with that kind of into, because this is where he's developing cogn- what he called cognitive therapy, what we now call cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. This is where this all is, is starting. So these kind of like foundational ideas, the concepts that he was coming up with, this is where he came up with them. Um, and these were the foundation for CBT. So the thought patterns that we've been talking about, he started seeing were really automatic, like really spontaneous. These things happen without people thinking about them consciously first. So he started calling them automatic negative thoughts and sometimes just automatic thoughts. So automatic negative thoughts, I remember when I was first working at my first place after grad school, 
example, the clinician that I worked with worked with ADHD, like youth a lot. Mm -hmm. And he did a lot of CBT. And one of the things I remember the most about working there is I had to copy, he had this like (laughs) handout called How to Squash Your Ants. Um, And it was how to stop your automatic negative thoughts. And it was kind of built for like younger kids and how to like categorize their thoughts that they were having. It always looked really cool. mm -hmm. But I had to make so many copies of that because he (laughs) must have given it out like five times a day. Yeah. So, but that was always kind of cute and like squashing your ants. Like we all have these automatic things Mm -hmm. that pop into our heads. And if we can be aware of them, we can take more control over them basically. Right. He categorized these ants into three categories that he called the cognitive triad. So that was negative ideas about yourself, negative ideas about the world, and negative ideas about the future. Yep. And that usually reflected back to like cognitive distortions. And those usually went even deeper to like a person's core beliefs that are formed throughout their whole life. Mm -hmm. And Beck basically said that like different types of cognitive distortions led to different disorders. You know, the kind of distinct ways we think about ourselves and kind of have these negative ideas about ourselves are going to lead to different, like, you know, having different, what am I trying to say? Like certain negative thoughts are going to lead more to like depressive tendencies. Right, right. And some to anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so stuff like that. And he went, oh, he went into like so many. Mm -hmm. Like they had a list of like all the ones, nope, that's the musician back, that's Aaron I should close that one. It's not him. Okay. Yeah. It said that like he and his colleagues researched bipolar, eating disorders, drug abuse, personality disorders. They covered a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. He found that, and this is kind of where we're going from cognitive therapy to cognitive behavioral therapy. He said that patients' thoughts about a situation influenced their reactions to the situation more so than the situation itself did. Mm. That's what he called the cognitive model. That is going to lead how we actually interact with the world. Mm-hmm. I guess more than the world itself. Right. What it's actually sense, doing. Yeah. yeah. Perception is everything mm-hmm. or something. <laughs> <laughs> everything or something. He helps his patients change the way they thought about situations. He helps them kind of engage in more adaptive behaviors and address the underlying beliefs about themselves that led to the automatic negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you kind of have to like – break down i think you kind of have to break down the automatic thoughts first and once those are once you don't have to deal with like the constant onslaught of the negative thoughts it leaves you a little more free to examine the deeper beliefs think about, about where yourself. they came from yeah yeah i do that with clients all the time where you they'll say something and i'll just take that phrase or that sentence and say you know that is an automatic negative thought and then we talk about how that same thought yeah, let's challenge the reality of that thing you just right, said right right and it pops up you know in this situation, in this situation, it's the same negative thought. It's popping up here and there and here and there. And then after we've And that makes found it that, so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. Like the more it pops up, the more it gets reinforced. Absolutely. And the more we entertain it, the more it gets reinforced. That's right. And so then we talk about well, where where would that have come from? What happened in your life or what situation or what training or what programming put that in your brain that that's one of your things, you know? What's the core? What's that? What's that regression thing that like Scientologists do or something? But they like do like a memory regression thing. Yeah, that's where they try to find your root or something. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what it's called. But, you know, like in EMDR, mm-hmm. they use some of that where they like yeah, talk about, the, the, yeah, like this is the, the automatic negative thought is what it actually is. But it goes back to like, when's the first time that you felt that? Or what's the first? And you like try to go back to that first trauma, basically, right. that put that 
automatic negative thought in your subconscious. Which, you know, that's a weaving together of, because there's a little bit of Freud stuff in there too, because mm-hmm. it's in your subconscious. Right. The root of it is, you know. And like, I don't know, to me, it's not usually just one thing. No, <laughs> I mean, no. that's a disingenuous way to talk about it too, because it's usually, especially like those, like it even talked about the core beliefs, that mm. those are things that form over years and years. Right. Over things that, so especially like if you're in a household where you're getting a certain type of like abuse thrown at you Mm -hmm. or if there's like different environmental stuff going on those things get reinforced and build up those core beliefs about ourselves in the world right so this makes me think about how we we've talked about many times before how the whole pool of psychological thought you know it didn't it's built on it you know layer after layer after layer Mm -hmm. you know so when we just when we talk about like cbt there are layers below it, you know, right. that, that Aaron Beck had started out very much, you know, with a lot of the same kind of beliefs or thoughts, yeah. you know, that Freud he would got, have that's had. That's how he got introduced right. into the field. So right. that's kind of, it's that like when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. Like if that's the training that you get, then you're going to see the world through that lens. And mm-hmm. and he was just able to kind of like tilt up one side of the lens and go, oh, oh there's actually, another idea. Yeah, yeah, this is a thing that's yeah. also going on. So thank God that through, and that's in a way kind of evolution, I think, you yeah. know, that through time, people have these new thoughts about things and, and we grow and we change. And right. the field of psychology is definitely one of those examples that grow and change constantly, even now today is still evolving. Yeah. And, and well, we'll because we're evolving. Be. We're always evolving. Right, like, right. Like people and how we interact with the world, that's always changing. And so. society is changing. Culture is changing all mm-hmm. around us. So, yeah. So psychology has to change with it. Right. Oh, let's go back to Beck. Let's finish up his life real quick. He did eventually go back to the University of Pennsylvania. He kind of quietly described himself as a neo-Freudian. He said he was like studying ego psychology. So kind of huh. um, like poking at people's ego defense mechanisms. That's kind of the way he he termed it in Freudian mm. aspects. So he could still be under that umbrella a little bit. Yes. he wa- Yeah, because yeah, he still wanted to be in the department. He especially wanted to be like researching with the department. Mm-hmm. So he really wanted to, to be involved with that. So I was trying to find like an anecdote I had seen. Uh, Beck usually explained his increasing belief in his cognitive model by referencing to a patient he had been listening to for a year at the Penn Clinic. When he suggested she was anxious due to her ego being confronted by her sexual impulses and asked her whether she believed this when she did not seem convinced, she said she was actually worried that she was being boring and that she thought this often and with everyone. Mm. So it was kind of as he was poking at the ego defense mechanisms that it kind of led him to say, oh, it's actually a thought that she's having. That repeated thought that she's having is actually what's Mm -hmm. behind this instead of the ego thing that I thought. It's kind of one of the anecdotes that like led him to go down that school of thought. That's a really good example. But he was still offering actively cognitive therapy at this time, so... (laughs) He just wasn't calling it that openly, I guess. <laughs> I just won't tell He was like, uh, come in for my neo-Freudian therapy. And as soon as the door closed, he's like, this is cognitive therapy. Just don't say it out there. In here, it's cognitive just therapy. Just between me and you. Everything in here is confidential. <laughs> yeah, You can't tell them either. I had a client ask me that the other day. Like, what's uh, what's the confidentiality? Like, can I tell people? I was like, yeah. That's yeah, actually like, a good question, You though. can tell like, whatever Can I want. tell them what my therapist said? Because, whoa. Yeah. I think that's encouraged. I've seen a lot of, like, tweets and stuff online that are just, like, people sharing cool things that their therapist told them yeah. that have helped them that, like, 
I think that's cool. Yeah. Sharing the little therapyisms out there. <laughs> therapyisms. We have a lot of therapyisms. Yeah. The closet thing, I think, is your therapyism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The broken bone thing, the wave thing, I think, is one of our therapyisms. We have a lot of them. We used to be gonna remember we were gonna write a book about we were all of do those. A book. We've the kinda, ABCs of therapy. Yeah, we kind of got a little busy with life. Didn't yeah, we? we started a podcast instead. I guess. <laughs> Probably went back and listened to all our episodes. We could probably. Yeah, Zipsters, if you want to cobble together an alphabet out of all the stupid things we say, that's that's totally fine. We'll take it. Say what you mean. We're going to crowdsource our book. Yeah, yeah. So he was offering therapy. He was also, like I said, constantly researching uh, literally for the rest of his life. And a lot of the work, uh, like I said, that he and his colleagues did was seeing how effective CBT was with different disorders. He authored or co-authored 25 books, 157 book chapters, and over 600 scientific articles. God. (laughs) Busy man. When did he have time to conceive those children? (laughs) Truly. (laughs) Truly. I have no idea. He was probably writing while they were having foreplay. Maybe. Maybe he was just, yeah. His brain was just always in three places at once. He was a multitasker. Maybe so. In 1994, he founded the Beck Institute for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy with his daughter, Dr. Judith S. Beck. Cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah. There's a really cute picture of them on, so most of this information I got from Wikipedia, but also from the beckinstitute.org page about uh, Aaron Beck. It has a lot of really good information about like his development of of this stuff. And it has a really good picture of him and his daughter. Aw. Aren't they cute? Doesn't he look like a nice guy? He looks like a really sweet man. I would really like to go to therapy with him. <laughs> I know. He seems like he'd be very, I want to have a therapist friendly. like that. Oh, this is interesting. So the reason that they founded the Institute was because, so in the 90s, there was this like huge surge of interest in CBT. I think it started to really gain traction in like the mid to late 60s when he like published something about it. That was kind of like when it became solidified as its own like school of thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the 90s, there was a a big surge of interest and there were not enough trained clinicians to meet the needs of like people seeking out CBT specifically. Right. Uh, So he opened the Institute to train Train people specifically i'm just going to read this directly from the beck institute stuff because it like wraps up his kind of life really well dr aaron t beck studied evidence-based psychological therapy right up until his passing on november 1st 2021 at the age of 100 wow he remained an emeritus professor at the university of pennsylvania and president emeritus of the beck institute until his death he leaves behind his wife of 71 years oh my gosh the honorable phyllis w beck retired Uh, i wonder how old she is then I mean, she'd have to be close She's to 100 be close. herself. Yeah. yeah. Four children, Roy, Jude, Daniel, and Alice, 10 grandchildren, and 10 great-grandchildren. Aww. He is dearly missed by many. It says, he will be remembered as a cherished mentor, a prolific reader, and a lifelong learner who is intently curious about a variety of subjects from the range of natural and social sciences to law, politics, sports, and pop culture. Dr. Beck was fervently interested in the lives of his family and friends, and he kept in regular touch with hundreds of former colleagues offering ongoing mentorship and friendship. Did the man sleep? (laughs) I don't think he... I don't think he slept Maybe the one thing he took from Freud was cocaine usage. (laughs) That's got to be the explanation here. Oh, I As he aged, that. he focused not on what he had lost, but on what he still had and what he could still do. His positive attitude was an inspiration to all who met him. It makes me want to cry. I know. He seems like a really, really sweet man. I have never really invested a lot of thought toward him. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think of him as, as just 
you know, this guy that was really involved and did the inventories, but I'm so glad but he that- was go, go, go for like a hundred years straight. Oh my God. <laughs> <gasps> oh, so Aaron, we are amazed. We appreciate everything you did, Aaron. at the level of energy that you showed and quite frankly awed at your absolutely at your exquisite loins and <laughs> your awesome inventories and everything else you did and by loins we mean brains <laughs> maybe i'm always attracted to a man's loins meaning brain <laughs> the cojones on this guy because that's where he uh, stores all his extra brains <laughs> So you want to talk about his inventories real quick? Yes, and let's maybe do. maybe even kind of take one. Oh you man, want to do that? would you would you be willing to be that vulnerable? I will be the guinea pig. All right, well I'll, we'll let you pick in just a minute which you would prefer. So just very briefly, because Anna gave you great history, just to remind you that even is that my computer making that sound? <laughs> I have no idea why it's doing that. So he just wants to hello computer. Wait, let me Hi, give it buddy. some reinforcement. <laughs> Hi, buddy. How's it going? I don't get this computer at <laughs> Can all. Can you mute it? I don't know how. <laughs> so everybody, Sipsters, just put up with a little So, breeze, yeah, whenever you hear a little breeze. ding, it's mom's computer. So just briefly, first, we'll talk about the Beck's Depression Inventory. So we've talked on episodes about, you know, the different kinds of assessments. So this is a way to do exactly what it says, to assess if a person has depression or not. He published the first one in 1961, which is a long time ago, because that was the year I was born. So we're talking a <laughs> long time ago. It's as old as you are. I know, it is old. It's it old. It shares your birthday. <laughs> it consisted of 21 questions uh, about how the client was feeling in the last week. Each question had a set of four possible responses ranging in intensity like from zero to three. Is that considered Likert if it's zero, one, two, three? But Likert's not just one to five, is it? No, but also is Likert just numbers with the same words every time? Because each of his questions have different answers scored zero to three. And then you add up the numbers, of course, and it will, when you look at your uh, total score, then it tells you basically how depressed you are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're depressed. It gives you a ranking. Yeah. It puts you on a leaderboard. (laughs) Right. And so a lot of assessments, you know, they started tweaking it. And so during the 70s, he started to revise it a little bit, the original instrument. And he called the second one, it was BDI, because that's, you're the one who always says what the letters. The Beck Depression Inventory. Thank you. (laughs) So the BDI 1A. Yeah. So that was the revision. Oh, that was the revision? Right. That was in 1978. Wait. So that's a pretty big thing. The first one was just the BDI 1? It was this BDI. It didn't have a number technically. It was one. Listen, Aaron, not to critique or anything, but when you like, you don't have to add like both one and a. <laughs> like you, if you're just gonna, maybe he thought he was gonna just keep changing. Also, that. that's, I don't know. Isn't that why they called the the DSM five like the five number five? So they could just so it'd be easier yeah. to like do like point one, point right, two, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you should have done the BDI point one, I guess. That's exactly right. Or the R. Isn't that, like, isn't revised already a thing? Right. I Sorry, know. Aaron. You're oh. doing a great job. Aaron, you could do it any way you want, bud. It's <laughs> He's okay. He's like, I had 87 other irons in the fire. <laughs> I was writing 600 papers, for God's sake. I didn't have <laughs> time to think about At the same time. 
And then as it kept changing, it kept growing. Significantly, one of the flaws in the BDI 1A is that it only addressed six out of the nine criteria uh, for depression, which was found at that time. Here comes some more. DSM-3 was what was going on at that point in time. So that's the third vision of the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. Yeah, boy, we've got ones and twos and threes. <laughs> so the BDI-2, which basically is what we use these days, was oh, revised in one? 1996. So we went from the BDI to the BDI-1A to just the BDI-2. Well, that's that's what I <laughs> Why is found. the A there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, your OCD showed up I now, you know. I'm getting a little heated. <laughs> I am. Oh, is that what that is, darn? <laughs> Just all okay. over it. Okay, and so now people who are taking the assessment are asked to think about how they've been feeling over, let's say, the past two weeks. So they've kind of extended that, not yeah. just like right now. That, At least in my experience, that's so your therapist can use it every once in a while to and kind update of check. It. Right, yeah. exactly. Like and compare that, where we were before. That was one of the things that, and in these days, currently, a lot of therapists use oh, yeah. the Beck's inventories. And so your therapist might use it like when you first come into therapy and then after some time, have you do the exact same inventory again. And what we hope we will see is that your number goes down a little bit Mm -hmm. to show a little bit of growth and getting rid of some of your depression or anxiety, depending on which one you're doing. But I always find it hard. I I say this because that's exactly how my therapist did it. Like when I first came in, that was one of the first like paperwork things that I filled out. And Uh then like every once, like I think it was every maybe two months ish, Mm -hmm. she would like give it to me again. And we would like kind of compare the scores, see where I'm at. I always find it hard. I think that's just because I have a kind of a weird relationship with like time to like, especially when you're feeling more depressed, time is weird. Right. So it's hard to be like, I can't tell the last two weeks from anything else. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of hard to, to limit it in that way, I think. So that's kind of another negative critique for these oh, assessments, you know, that that when you're in the midst of a, a very depressive mode or if you've had a very anxious kind of day or week, yeah. it affects your scores for that day, you know, right. for when you're taking it. So we've talked about this before that self-assessments can be very subjective and not only because you literally are in a different mood when you take it, but also some of the research they did showed, this is, I think, strange, that people who would take the Beck's depression inventory, they scored it differently if they were with a clinician or if they like did it at home. And they scored higher if they were with a clinician than if they were at home. So that makes hmm. you kind of think, okay, are they... Are they Is it like the environmental? Right. The same people or like different people? No, the same or? person was given like the same... Because that was the research was that I, how does the environment No, I truly think it? that like, especially if, if these were cases where they had been working with the clinician for a while, I have... Like that just happened to me this week where a person came in and was like, like started the session pretty good. And by the end, they were like crying and talking about like, why? Oh, I thought I was doing great. What's happening? Happening. Literally I'm like, several this is where a week. It happens. <laughs> I'm sure that I'm sure that happens. Yeah, for you too. That it's, literally, it's frequent. yeah, many clients, and they'll say things like, "I really was okay till I came in here." It's like, well, this is the safe space. That yeah. that's that means our therapy is doing good. That we've created a safe space for you to come in and do that, where you can open up and let it out. Yeah, yeah. it just feels like. A setback when it happens because it's like I thought I was doing right. Okay. I said to one of, my, one of my clients this week, it's kind of like when my mom was alive, I would be fine <laughs> oh my God, until I'm mom so walked in you. the house, and oh I'm like, oh my <laughs> god. 
There was just recently, and and has happened a million times throughout my life, but I was like having a pretty bad day and I like came over to your house and we mm. were talking and it was fine. And then when you hugged me, I like Swish. tears immediately. Yeah. yeah. There's just something about it when you know you're safe yeah. to explode with that stuff. Right. Yeah. It opens the dam and it comes out. So I can see that like they're in a setting where they're used to confronting some dark parts of themselves where right. that would make it a little, a little more depressing. Depressy. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, he was doing so good with his depression inventory that said, hey, how about if we do one on anxiety now? <laughs> you must like those inventories, bud. <laughs> and actually, the back anxiety inventory looks very similar. It feels very similar. Each of them have 21 items. They both they use the Likert. Of items? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. They both use Likert scales from zero to three, which always kind of bugs me because it's like, why didn't you go one to four? Why yeah. zero to three? I guess it's zero because zero is actually like, this is not happening to me. There is none of it. It was developed in 1988, and then a revised manual was published in 1993 that just kind of included some changes in scoring. He did have more help on his inventory because, like, he had several colleagues working with him on that. For this, 17 years old and older for the anxiety. And then for the other one, it was 13 and older for the depression. But there are also... I should add that there are out there, there are back kind of inventories that have just been changed yeah. for, for kids. Yeah. And I can't remember now what they call it. The youth something youth. Sorry, guys. Sorry, We don't sisters. care about those because they weren't made it's by It's a Beck. damn kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense that you couldn't use the same exact inventory yeah, for yeah. children because the questions are different. So I did want to say something about that too, though, that – a lot of people, for lack of a better word, have taken Beck's inventories and kind of changed them slightly or altered them to make them fit a different situation. One of the things, you know, when you go just to your medical doctor, one of the things that they found in their research was that if people were having physical issues, especially with anxiety, but also depression, if you're having physical manifestations like panic attacks, but that make you not be able to breathe well, mm-hmm. they started to see that it was hard to use the inventory while they're having a panic attack. <laughs> no, like for for a patient, can you check the box? Can for, you for can a, you circle the number for a patient like coming in to see their regular like physician, their medical doctor for some physical stuff? Mm-hmm. If you then gave them Beck's inventory, it would get confusing because they were having physical ailments that were actually separate. Oh, so what I'm getting to here is that they've altered some of the Beck inventory. So like you guys know this, Sipsers, when you go to the doctor and they. They just ask you like three or four questions yeah. like, have you been sad lately? Right. They have really minimalized it to just like, how are you feeling? Rather mm-hmm. than, are you tired all the time? Are right. you Are you having stomach aches? Because they're trying to just zone in on depression or anxiety. I don't know how effective that is. I got to be honest with you. Because when I go to the doctor and they say... <laughs> have, have you been, been sad, sad more than once in the last two weeks or whatever i know the questions are so like are I'm you always, kidding i'm at this point where i'm like yes but i have depression and i'm a counselor and i've already <laughs> talked to my doctor about this we do not need to handle right, this <laughs> right this has already been taken care of thank you very much yes this is very much in the works <laughs> So basically, Sipsters, you can go online, even though I was telling Anna this before, that it says online very clearly in several places that the Beck's depression inventory is copywritten and that you have to pay for it when you print it. But it's online everywhere. (laughs) So you can go online and just look up Beck's depression inventory 
and you could do it yourself or Beck's anxiety inventory. But this is one of those things that we need to give this warning that if you go on, because we're going to go through one right now, if you right. go on and you're like, oh shit, I am extremely depressed. Don't take that as like the last word. You know, if no, you're seeing no, a therapist, no, no. this is one talk tool to them about it. that we use to assess right. among a great deal of tools that we use to treat. Exactly. So don't. And self-assessment is, over and over again, we're going to say this, self-assessment is always subjective. Yeah. And so... So even self-report while you're in a clinician's office is subjective. Exactly. That's why we talk about these kind of with a grain of salt, because it can be, especially if you know... What it is, especially if you've taken it more than once, like okay. there are people who don't want to admit how bad they're doing and that's really true. can flub the results. Right. I just saw that this week, as a matter of fact, with one of my adolescent clients. So Anna, would you rather do the anxiety inventory or the depression? Let's do the anxiety. I'm on some new anxiety meds. I want to see if okay. they're working. <laughs> Okay, so this one is actually a little bit easier with its Likert because it doesn't have different answers every time. Oh. So it just has at least this particular one that I have pulled up. So we're going zero to three. Zero is not at all. Mm -hmm. One is mildly, but it doesn't bother you very much. So two is moderately, and then three is severe. It's bothered me a lot. It bothers me a lot. Now, that doesn't mean all the time. It just means a lot. Yeah. Okay? And they're like just real quick phrases that you have to give me a number from zero to three. Okay. A lot of this, you'll notice, are uh, physical things. Okay? Okay. Okay, the first one. Numbness or tingling? Zero. Feeling hot. I'm always hot. Don't write that down. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Zero. (laughs) Wobbly in your legs. Hmm. Zero. Hmm, this is interesting. Unable to relax. Two. <laughs> Fear of the worst happening. One. Dizzy or lightheaded. Zero. Heart pounding or racing. One. Feeling unsteady. What does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't say if that means emotionally or physically, but I would assume it means physically. Unsteady. But just like... Kind of out. I'll say because okay. sometimes, like, yeah. I do get like shaky mm-hmm. with my anxiety sometimes. So yeah, one. Okay, terrified or afraid, which to me are two very different things. I mean, it's a very <laughs> different level. Being terrified, being afraid, but so focus on the afraid. I think terrified or afraid is all on one line. I guess one. Okay, nervous. Two. Feeling like you're choking or like you can't swallow. Uh, one. I just had that this weekend. I've never had it before. Hands trembling. Oh. You said that before. One. Okay. Okay. Again, they're saying shaky or unsteady. Again? Uh-huh. The other one just said unsteady. W- one, I guess. Okay. I'm so confused. <laughs> Fear of losing control. He just really needed to get to the 21 mark. He was like, we need 21 questions. <laughs> just take two like, just words from the other again. questions. Put them in <laughs> another question. Sorry, what was it? Fear of losing control. <laughs> um, one. I mean, I yell in the car sometimes. <laughs> no, you don't fear it. You just do it. I just you do just it. You just lose control. That's why, yeah, that's why it's only one. I don't fear it a lot. I just let it happen. Okay, difficulty in breathing. Oh, I kind of, mm, I guess I kind of put that with the like choking feeling. Uh-huh. Because that's to me like that feels like I can't get a full breath. Uh-huh. So, so I'll put zero on that one because I put one on the other one. Is that fair? Sort of. Or is it the same one? No, I think choking is more like you can't swallow and your throat's kind of oh, swollen. Would, yeah, and breathing is like. It's <sighs> breathing more. Like I notice the breathing more. Right. I see what you're doing though. Fear of dying. 
It's not one that gets me very often. I guess one. Being scared. That, hey, another one was afraid, right? Uh-huh. I'm terrified. Terrified, afraid, scared. Are you afraid? Just a little. You're just, just a little spooked. <laughs> now I'm scared. Because I'm. <laughs> just a little wibbly wobbly. <laughs> now I'm scared. <laughs> Aaron, do you want me to be scared? I'm, I'm scared. Are that you this afraid? Is, uh, be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Aaron's like, do you know that I'm watching you all the time? Always watching everyone? I can do that. <laughs> one. Yeah. Indigestion. Mm. Well, okay, so... The, it's supposed to be two weeks, I, so you're better. I was going to say... <laughs> yeah, yeah, the last couple... But I'm also, also on meds you're on for that. So, that. zero, yay! <laughs> Praise God for that. Faint or lightheaded? Zero. Your face feeling flushed. Only when you're drinking wine. When I'm drinking wine. Or when I'm very embarrassed, which happens often. <laughs> yeah, one. And, um, like, cold or hot sweats. Getting sweaty. I'm always sweaty all the time. One. Okay. I know I should say higher than one. It's all the time. But usually it's because I'm running around. (laughs) I was going to say, it doesn't count if you're like riding 20 miles on your stationary bike (laughs) like you do. Okay. Well, according to this, you have low anxiety. I'll take it. But, you know, it could score from zero to 21 is considered low anxiety and you scored 16. So that's good. Yeah. But again... I feel like the, that his anxiety scale, this thing, is very physical focused. Yeah, like it's very like physical. What's that word? Somatic. Somatic. Yeah. Somatic symptoms. Which, when I think about anxiety, I think more about thought. Yeah. Which surprises me because if he's the whole cognitive dude, yeah. Why is his? Because impo- like my anxiety usually is like brain spiral. Right. Right. Uh, ruminating. Ruminating. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it is interesting that there weren't any that were like thinking of thinking based, yeah. right? Well, I guess fear fear would be thinking feeling, thinking those about are feelings death. Feelings thinking about death, I suppose. Fearing yeah. death, though. Fear could be thinking. Yeah. You, I mean, you're afraid because you're thinking. So good job, Anna. Apparently, Thanks. you have low anxiety today. Thank you. Today, that's <laughs> today. The, that is very. It is very based on how you're feeling in the moment. Because uh-huh. right now, I'm not feeling too anxious, so right. it's harder to be like, mm, I don't know if that's happened lately. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, like we were talking before we started, that if we would have taken that, you know, earlier in the week when you had had a really, really bad day, right, it would feel very different. Just, just to give you this, a very quick example of the depression the depression one is different in that each of the questions it doesn't just have the same answers for all the questions like the one that you just did because the one that you just did was you know zero to three and each one let me give you just a couple like the first one is from zero to three and then each statement is different yeah i do not feel sad i feel sad i am sad all the time and i can't snap out of it i am so sad and unhappy that i can't stand it oh yeah like it's i do remember this one being weird it's not mm-hmm. like there's a question you have to rank it it's no, like the answers are one. the questions right Here's one. So zero is, I do not feel like a failure. One is, I feel I have failed more than the average person. That's a big jump to go from, well, anyway. Not a failure. Right, to feel like you do more than the average. Wouldn't you think it would be like, I don't fail to- a normal amount. (laughs) Yeah, like sometimes I fail. Sometimes I fail. Yeah, but it goes from, I do not feel like a failure. I feel I feel more than the average person. As I look back on my life, all I can see is a lot of failures- which seems to me like the top, but no, there's one more. <laughs> I, feel I, I feel I am a complete failure as a person. 
That's pretty, like, pretty good intense. lord in heaven if you check that one. But so. those are, I think that makes sense probably because the, like, automatic negative thoughts that he kind of came up with right. were based around the, like, loss and fear and rejection that he linked to depression. Right. So I think it makes sense that more of the thought pattern stuff shows up in the depression inventory than it does in the anxiety. Mm. You know that what I'm saying? That makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so Sipsters, if you want to check out either one of those, if you Google them, they're all over the internet. Because, like, those kind of questions are what my rumination with anxiety looks like often. And see, as we often talk about, depression and anxiety... So closely tied. Yeah, they they roll over each other all the time. So I think that's really true. I mean, going back to that again, like, I would have a hard time answering that that one about the failure. Mm -hmm. Because when it says, I do not feel like a failure... To me, my brain hears, I never feel like a failure, which isn't true because right. there are some days I feel like a freaking failure. Right. I wish there was one that said, sometimes I feel like a failure, but there's not. It goes right from what is zero, like I never feel like a failure to more I feel like people. I feel, yeah. which isn't true about me either. I don't feel that I feel more than average person. I don't. <laughs> I know. I see it on your face, Anna. <laughs> Because that's one of your automatic negative that's thoughts. That really is, is one uh-huh. of mine. Because I, w- I would put myself on like two or three on that scale. Mm-hmm. Probably not three, because three is pretty catastrophizing. Yeah. And even I'm even on my like pretty bad days, I'm like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got one or two I, or two. I have, done, I have done some things that were good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And again, for the Beck's depression, they ask you to think back like over the last couple of weeks. They mm-hmm. don't ask yeah. you to go... But again, where you are in the day when you're taking the assessment is going to be reflected in that. So maybe like two weeks ago, you had like a couple of really crappy days where you could hardly get out of bed. But today, or one and a half weeks later, you're feeling much better. So then you take the assessment, you're like, yeah, I'm not depressed at all. Right. So it is very dependent. It's very subjective. I think it requires a high level of like, which ideally you would get if you were working on that kind of anyway in therapy with your, you know, especially CBT clinician. Right. Is like becoming more aware of the thoughts and kind of breaking them down intentionally. Like I think you would ideally develop a higher level of self-awareness about it anyway. Right. And in the depression inventory, it does do much more, as Anna said, much more of the cognitive stuff. But then it also does have the physical stuff because it asks you about if you're tired, if you're sleeping. Yeah. It asks about your appetite or if you've lost weight. Because those are like the appetite and the sleeping stuff are so so like textbook depression right. symptoms, like things that we look for that are always like whenever a client mentions, I'm like, ding, mm-hmm, let's exactly. talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Either that I can't ever sleep or that I sleep all the time. Yeah, or... basically whatever cha- is changing from your normal dynamic. Like right. if someone's like a pretty good sleeper and then they suddenly can't sleep at all or if they're like sleeping way more. Right. Whatever is a departure from their norm. Okay. Those are the inventories, baby. You know, one of the things I was thinking when you were talking about Beck's life, though, is we've talked about people in the history of psychology who they come out of their trauma to give us something for the field of psychology that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and and I remember in the past that I've heard you say, I like to talk about the people because it kind of shows us where they came, why they came up with yeah. these things. It's interesting with Beck that it doesn't seem, at least from what we've heard, that he had any major traumas or anything bad. It was like he was successful from the beginning and he was brilliant and yeah. he got on he, this he track. He kind of got kicked a little bit about 
Oh, when he didn't get accepted by yeah, the yeah, yeah, that's true. But then he handled it amazingly. Right. He's Screw like, you okay, guys, I got to do it anyway. Yeah, I flipped on the bird <laughs> and opened his own practice. I'm going to do this with or without your approval. While he was on a sabbatical, like he was still like technically, I isn't that like your tail still you technically still a part yeah. of the university yeah. or whatever? That's so funny to me. Yeah, that's awesome. Total power move. So yeah, even even when he. And I think that kind of goes back to what the, it was saying about, like, he always focused on what he could still do, not what he had been, like, that. blocked yeah. from doing. So, like, I do think he was just a really, like, forward-thinking person and, like, constantly moving, constantly moving forward. He right. seems like a really cool guy. Well, and to live to be 100 and still be producing. Yeah. Um, he, he was m- probably in the middle of an article when he, he died. M- probably. He must have been good about his own stress, yeah. his own anxiety. Well, you know, we he know would- he was. He was keeping notebooks right. of his own thoughts. That might be a good plug for how to live to be 100. Yeah. Be very in touch with be your cognitive. Be very self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> Keep journals about how you how you feel and your automatic negative thoughts. And That's not a really a terrible idea. Like no. if you are listening to the Sipsters and you, you are resonating with the idea of those like automatic negative thoughts, start writing them down. Like you don't even have to have a specific like plan to do it. Just in a notebook, start writing down the negative thoughts so you can start noticing those patterns and like you can rank them and reframe them if you want, like he did or whatever. But Mm -hmm. even if you're just writing them down. Right. And I would I would encourage you to if you think, oh I never have negative thoughts (laughs) sometimes it does take (laughs) We both laughed. I know. Sometimes it takes another person and that's another reason that our t-shirt that says go to therapy therapy. is really good because it takes that objective person to listen to you just talking and then to (laughs) say that's a negative thought that's one of those (laughs) that thing you just said that negative thought yeah yeah because you likely will not recognize your own right away no you kind of need to have someone help you point it out yeah unless you're really self-aware in other ways but if you know it's hard to see for yourself it's hard to notice that those things are maladaptive when we've been having them rattle around in our heads for years and years exactly we we think no that's just that's just normal Uh right (laughs) well it's normal for us that doesn't mean and that's and that's real and rational because i hear it all the time yeah yeah of course it it might not be it it happens a thousand times in my head a week of course it's real Mm -hmm. like well it doesn't mean it's Mm, true maybe not (laughs) yeah (laughs) okay so yet another reason to go to therapy go to therapy Okay. Always got to plug it. Are we ready to uh, to thank our listeners? I think we're ready. May I thank them? Please do. Okay. Sipsters, thank you so much for being with us today. We do invite you to think more about those inventories. Go online and, and try them if you want. Or ask your therapist yeah. about them and see maybe they've already done it in some way. Um, say, can we do it again? Let's, yeah. Let's, uh, let's I just listened to this great no. <laughs> podcast about it. Let's do it again. We've never done this. Can we please do <laughs> yeah. this? And go check out some of our merch too because we have those great shirts now that say go to therapy and yeah. and they're pretty cool. So if, if you want to do that. So we do thank you though for your loyalty listening to our podcast and we it would encourage you to maybe invite someone else to listen who's never listened before. Tell your friends. Tell your friends about it. Tell your friends about the coolest podcast in the whole world. And also Thank us. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. 
Yes, thank you so much. Uh, you can find more of us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're Freudian Sips Pod on all of those. Our site is probably the best way to kind of find all our episodes in the hub and our merch. So if you go to FreudianSipsPod.com and you click the merch link, you can go there quick or all our other episodes and where to find us are there too. Uh, you can get a hold of us directly if you want to email us at FreudianSipsPod at gmail.com. And please remember to leave us a nice rating and review if you can do that wherever you're listening. Our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, and it sounds like this. Mm-hmm.